0: Welcome to a brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm Lauren Evans. And I'm Virginia Allen. So all of D.C. is preparing for this weird phenomenon that is supposed to happen next week. Every 17 years, parts of eastern U.S. experience what I'm going to call a cicada invasion. Those really big, loud summer bugs called cicadas emerge from the ground in mass. And when I say mass, literally billions of these bugs are about to come out. Uh, So I had to look it up and figure out what exactly happens because I've not experienced this before. So the cicadas, they come out of the ground, they molt, and then they mate and lay eggs for a few weeks on trees, and then they die. And that's it. So, Lauren, like, I'm picturing something out of, like, a sci-fi horror movie. I might be a little bit dramatic, though. I, I don't know.
1: I am not looking forward to this, Virginia. I've been in D.C. for 10 years, so I have not experienced this yet. As as we talked about last week, I was in Florida over the weekend, and it was love bug season. And do you guys get love bugs up in Massachusetts?
0: I don't think so.
1: So they are these little... They almost look like little flies and they have like a little red dot on their back and what they do is they they kind of connect at the butt and then they fly <laughs> around and like swarm. there's swarms of them but they're not really like gross bugs, right yeah. they're just like these little bu- and that every year your car just gets covered in them because there's just so many in florida and so i'm, I'm used to that but like these cicadas like they look like be like they look Gross, and I, that for some reason that seems so much worse than the love bugs.
0: No, totally. Well, I mean, love bugs are like cute and little. Cicadas are like a flying, larger version of a cockroach Ugh. with like Ugh. the crusty outer shell. And...
1: I'm like legit, like sick to my stomach just thinking of it.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Well, we'll see. We're going to brace ourselves. (laughs) I might just stay inside for two weeks. But yeah. (laughs) All right. Well, on that note, (laughs) Lauren, what do we have queued up for today's show?
1: Up on today's Problematic Women, we talk with OBGYN Dr. Christina Francis. Dr. Francis is chair of the American Association of Pro-Life OBGYNs. She explains how the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists became infiltrated by the abortion agenda and what her organization is doing about it. Plus, the grassroots director of Heritage Action for America, Janae Strackey, joins us to break down what is happening across America regarding election integrity and new voting laws. And as
0: always, we'll be crowning our Problematic Woman of the Week. Each week on Problematic Women, we sort through the news to find stories that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women, those whose views and opinions are often excluded by those on the so-called feminist left. If you are a problematic
1: woman or just someone who supports strong, independent women, please consider supporting us by leaving a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and encouraging others to subscribe. It really does make a difference. All
0: right, let's get to it. I am so pleased to be joined by medical doctor Christina Francis. Dr. Francis is the chair of the board of the American Association of Pro-Life OBGYNs. Dr. Francis, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank
2: you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you.
0: You are a strong pro-life advocate in the medical field. Uh, I want to begin by just asking you to share a little bit of your own story with us. Why did you decide to pursue a career as an OBGYN?
2: Sure. So, um, I never in a million years thought that I would be doing OB. Um, when I started college, I knew that I wanted to go into medicine mostly because I always loved science, but I also just loved interacting with people and um, and you know just really kind of helping meet needs. And I grew up in a in an inner city ministry actually, my par- that my parents ran, and so it was instilled in me from a very young age that uh, that it's important to. Uh, reach out to especially those who need our help and uh, and to do what we can to help them. And so for me, medicine just seemed like a really good combination of that and my love of science as well. And um, in college, I spent some time overseas and lived in Romania for a while, worked in orphanages there. And it was during my time there that I decided that I wanted to do medical missions full time when I finished my training. And so actually heading into medical school, I thought that I would do maybe family practice or internal medicine or pediatrics, you know, something that would just kind of give me a pretty broad, um, uh, experience and, and be able to take care of the most people. And so never even thought about OBGYN. Um, and then it was actually my second year of medical school. I was shadowing a family practice doctor, and he had a patient who was going to be delivering, and so he said that I could go with him. And I had witnessed the birth of my sister as a as a younger person, but uh, but this was kind of my first time really being into what was happening and 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 paying attention to that. And so uh, so I went with him to the delivery of this woman who I'd never met before, and uh, kind of stood towards the back of the room as he did the delivery. And um, as she was delivering, I just started bawling because I just thought it was the neatest, most beautiful thing that I had ever seen. And uh, because she saw me crying, this older, experienced labor and delivery nurse came up to me and she looked at me and she said, oh, honey, if this makes you cry, you need to do this for a living. And I have wished so many times that I could find her so that she could know that that She really changed the course of my life with saying that because when she said that, I thought, well, maybe I need to to think about this. And so um, then as I went through my clinicals in my third year, um, I realized there was so much about the field of OBGYN that just really spoke to me and uh, that I loved, you know, not only the delivery part, which is absolutely my favorite part of my job, um, but I loved that I got to be there for women through many different aspects of their lives, you know, when they're teenagers, when they're having babies, when they're going through menopause, you know, towards the end of their life, even a lot of women are still seeing their OBGYN. So getting to be there for women through many different phases of their life. um, And I realized too, that it was actually great preparation for, uh, for the mission field. So, um, you know, many times in developing countries, the, the population, uh, there that are hurting the most, as far as medical care goes are women and children. And so it actually set me up very well for being able to, uh, practice medicine on the mission field.
0: Wow. So then are, are you still sometimes traveling,
2: um, and doing missions work overseas? I do. I do sometimes. Of course, COVID put a little bit of a halt yes. on that, unfortunately. But um, but yeah, so I actually lived in Kenya for three years uh, following my residency training and worked at a, at a small mission hospital in rural Kenya and um, fell in love with it. Never in a million years thought that I would be back living in the States, um, but it was actually the um, other mission, what I consider a mission field of, uh, reaching women in this country and around the world with the message that, that abortion is not good for them. It's not good for their children. Um, that brought me back to the States, but since moving back to the States in 2014, um, I have gone back to the same hospital in Kenya every year. Um, of course, pre COVID. So,
0: yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I, I uh worked as a missionary for a year in South Africa, so I can totally understand you kind of get bit by the African bug and they're you just an do. amazing group of people. <laughs> and, yeah. But I would uh, let's talk a little bit more um, about your you know, your really mission now uh, in the area of, of pro life and of talking with individuals about the value
2: of life. Have you always been pro life? Did you grow up in a pro life family? I did, I did. So I'm so thankful that um, you know I grew up in a, a Christian family and a family that instilled in me from from the time I was young that um, that all life is valuable and that uh, we are you know created in the image of God and because that we are valuable. Um, my mom actually works for a right to life affiliate in Southern Indiana, and so that was in our home. And so I, you know, I always was pro life, but. I would say for a long time, I never really knew exactly why I was pro-life or was never fully able to defend that position, at least with anything beyond my Christian faith. And so, um, I was back in the States actually in, during the time that I was in Kenya, I came back to the States for a time to, to finish board exams and things like that. And, and it was while I was in the States that, uh, a very dear friend of mine, my best friend, and I always say that everyone should have a friend like this in their life, um, called me up one day and she had been doing some educating of herself uh, during 40 Days for Life about abortion. And she called me and she said, Christina, we need to talk. And I said, sure, what's up? And she said, uh, well, you're a woman and you're an OBGYN and you say that you're pro life, but what are you really doing about it? I think that you could be mm. doing so much more. <laughs> And uh, wow. like I said, everybody should have a person like that in their life, I think, Absolutely. that, <laughs> that yes. challenges them to um, to really step up. And so she really got me thinking a lot about, you know, it's she's right. I have said my whole life that I'm pro-life and I find myself in this position where um, I'm a woman. And so, you know, regardless of whether or not this is um, correct or not you know I think that people tend to listen to women a little bit more on this issue even though I'm of the opinion certainly that men have just as much of a say about about whether or not abortion is is right or not but um, you know I'm a woman and I'm an OBGYN and so I see these pre-born children from you know their very earliest stages the earliest that we can see them and I see them throughout pregnancy and I see them when they're born and I see you know all of the emotions and that go along with a pregnancy whether it be a wanted pregnancy or an unplanned pregnancy. And, and so, you know, because of that, and because of my medical training, maybe I am really uniquely positioned to be able to, to address this. And so um, it really was just kind of a searching of my heart of, you know, totally shifting my perspective. Again, my plan was never to live in the U S and my plan was I was going to be overseas for the rest of my life. I would have told you you were crazy. If you would have told me I was going to be living in the U S you know, that was never on my radar. And so just did a lot of soul searching. And, and I'll tell you that the moment that I think I knew for sure that this was what I was supposed to do, um was I was in Washington DC for the National March for Life and um and I went to the Holocaust Museum there and I'm sure many people who have listening who are listening have been there um and I was in if you've been there, you'll know the room I'm talking about, but I was in one of the rooms in the museum that talks about kind of the lack of response, um, to what was going on to this, you know, Holocaust, the slaughter of millions of innocent people that was going on and the lack of response from the U S and other Western countries. Um, and I just remember thinking when I was sitting in that room and I was reading some of the news articles and, you know, listening to the audio commentary, and I just remember getting very indignant and thinking, man, if I would have been alive back then, I would have done something. There's no way I could have been quiet about that. You know, how could people know that millions of innocent people were being killed and not do anything about it? And the irony of that thought <laughs> hit me in that moment. And I just thought, you know, there's a Holocaust going on right now. There's a Holocaust of preborn children who are being killed every day for the sake of convenience and mm-hmm. not only are preborn children being killed but women are being harmed and they're being lied to about abortion and about what abortion can, you know, quote unquote accomplish for them or help them to accomplish and um and I know better and so why am I not saying anything or doing anything about it and so that really was kind of my defining moment, I would say, you know, I'd always considered myself pro-life, but where I just thought, okay, I can't be silent about this anymore. And so that's when I made the decision that I would move back to the States. I didn't know what that was going to look like. You know, I just thought, okay, I'm going to do this and I'll figure out how I can have a voice in this, uh, in this very important subject. So.
0: Wow. Wow. Those are sobering moments when a truth really hits your heart uh, in a way that marks you like that. I'm, I'm so thankful for those moments in our lives, but they can be incredibly painful as well. Yes. <laughs> uh, you kind of wake up to those realities. Uh, so now uh, you are uh, the board of the American Association of Pro-Life OBGYNs. So what what was that journey like? You decided, okay, I'm, I'm moving back to America. I'm going to protect life and talk about the value of life as a medical professional uh, and then what ultimately led you to, um, to such a prominent role uh, in, in the OBGYN pro-life field.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, isn't it amazing how (laughs) I think sometimes we're just, we're just called to, um, answer a call and to be faithful to what we know that we're supposed to do. And, and you don't always know what that's going to look like. And so I moved back to the States and and I joked that for the first year, probably or so that I was back in the States, I kept a suitcase packed by the door because I just thought, (laughs) you know, I don't, I don't know if this is going to work out or not. And if not, I can always go back to Kenya. So, um, so, yeah, so when I first came back, I, um, was very lucky and blessed to uh, receive some pro-life apologetics training from, um, Scott Klusendorf with Life Training Institute. And, um, just really for the first time I think ever in my life saw that, um, Yes, being a Christian informs my stance on abortion, but also even if I wasn't a Christian, I would still be pro-life because it just makes sense when you look at true human equality and when you look at the fact that science tells us beyond a shadow of a doubt that those pre-born children are full fledged, whole, distinct and living human beings from the moment of fertilization. And so because of that, my duty as a physician is to protect that life as well as the life of the mother. And um and so it was just very eye opening for me to think of it in that way and to think of, you know, to kind of look at how do we look at preborn children as being different from from born human beings, but are they really different? You know, and so kind of dissecting that. And so um so I just started talking with people um, just in my in my circle of influence um, about that, and had some really great conversations. And then I was introduced by a mutual friend to Dr. Donna Harrison, who's our CEO at Aplog, which is a much easier way of saying the American Association of <laughs> Pro-Life OBGYNs. That's a mouthful, so we could just we could just call it Aplog. Um, so I was introduced to to Dr. Harrison, who has become an amazing mentor of mine. And anybody who knows this woman knows that she is a powerhouse in. in in the pro-life movement. And, um, and she is really a true, um, hero and, um, defender of, of women and their children. So, um, so I started talking with Dr. Harrison and, and found out about APLOG. I didn't even know about APLOG before that. And, um, and, and then went to my first APLOG conference. So we hold an annual educational conference every year for physicians and other medical professionals that provide um, academic level presentations for continuing medical education about different aspects of um, of abortion and the pro-life movement and conscience protections in medicine. And, you know, I'll be honest, when I went to my first conference, um, having not really known much about APLOG, I kind of thought, oh, this will be a great chance to, you know, network with other physicians who are pro-life as well. But in my mind, I mean, just being fully honest, I had in my mind that this was probably going to be kind of a kumbaya moment, you know, we'll like sit down together and, and we'll encourage one another and that'll be great. And it'll be worth, going just for that, but I was blown away at Mm. the level of the presentations that were given, the science that was presented and realizing that science really is on the side of the pro-life movement. Not only when you look at the fact that these pre-born children are in fact, human beings and, and deserving of our protection, but also when you look at overwhelming evidence that exists that abortion is harmful for women. You know, not only does it end the life of an innocent human being, but it also sometimes permanently harms the life of that woman who um, has made that abortion decision, oftentimes under duress or you know just in a moment of panic, not realizing and not being told by the abortion industry that this is going to harm her lifelong. And so that uh, was another life-changing moment for me to say, you know, not only should I be defending the rights of these preborn children, but man, in my practice and in my interactions with colleagues, I need to be passing this information along that really, if we're recommending what's best for our patients, that's never going to include abortion.
0: Hmm. Wow. That's amazing. Would, would you mind just taking a minute to share a little bit of the history of the American Association of Pro-Life OBGYNs or AFLOG uh, Mm. with us. I mean, why why was there a need to start a specifically pro-life association for obstetricians and gynecologists?
2: What a great question, because it has always baffled me as to how an OBGYN, a physician who is dedicated, our specialty is dedicated to caring for pregnant women and their children. How can an OBGYN either perform abortions or support the performance of abortions. So it's a great question. It's very sad to me that we have to have a separate organization. Um, We actually started out as a special interest group within ACOG, or the American College of OBGYNs. So a lot of people have probably heard of ACOG. They are the largest professional medical organization representing OBGYNs in the country. Um, They claim to represent close to 60,000 OBGYNs or members. Um, from across the country. However, where we find ourselves currently, they do not represent their membership whatsoever when it comes to the issue of abortion. So um, just kind of a little bit of history behind ACOG and, and where they started and, and to show you the need for APLOG and, and where we came from. So ACOG, when they started back in the mid-50s, um, they started, again, as a professional medical organization representing women's healthcare care uh, physicians. And when they started, they actually held to the Hippocratic view on abortion. So the original Hippocratic Oath, that's the basis of our medical ethics, expressly forbids performing abortion or recommending an abortion to a woman because it recognizes that that would be ending the life of a human being and that that practice has no place in medicine. And so ACOG, when they started in the mid-50s, they held to this belief, so their documents that we have from from back when they started um, clearly expressed that the only form of abortion, which I would say is actually not an abortion, but that they um, supported and and acknowledged had a place in medicine, was what they called a therapeutic abortion. So what that referred to at that time was um, a situation where the life of the mother was at risk, and you needed to intervene and end her pregnancy prematurely. Um, and so that was the only only form of abortion that they endorsed or, or said had any place in medicine. Um, And they even acknowledged like towards the late fifties, early sixties, that because medicine was advancing so quickly that the list of reasons why a therapeutic abortion would need to be performed was becoming smaller and smaller and that they actually hoped that it would eventually go away completely, that there would never be a need for a therapeutic abortion. So that's how ACOG started. That's in complete congruence with the Hippocratic Oath and in complete agreement with how I practice medicine. So, you know, there's very definitely times where, um, a woman's life is in danger. However, just because you have to prematurely deliver her, her child, even if that's pre viability, meaning that child is not going to end up surviving, that can be done in a way that respects the dignity of that child and done in a way that, that lets that child remain intact and gives that family a child to grieve. So um, so this is, you know, basic to the practice of OB-GYN. And, and thankfully, those situations are very rare where that needs to happen. Unfortunately, we move into the 60s and um, some... Key members of the ACOG leadership who were very much pro-abortion, very much for the legalization of abortion, um, without the input of members. So this was a top-down initiative um, at ACOG, started to push for um, liberalization of abortion laws and started to push for ACOG to endorse um, more instances where an abortion would be performed. So they took it from the um, life of the mother being at risk to, well, if her health is endangered in some way, then we're going to support abortion. Um, and I think for, for any of your, your listeners who are, are well acquainted with um, Roe v. Wade and Dovey Bolton, that health exception um, probably sounds very familiar. And in fact, that change in language where we're looking at health, not just, okay, her physical health is going to be severely impaired, but when we're changing that definition of health to include Anything in a woman's environment, so um, her social health, her mental health, her um, uh, her familial health, her age—any of these things could relate to health. And if any of these things were in danger, then that should justify an abortion. And so, again, this was coming from the top down. This was not representative of ACOG's membership and how they practiced, or or what they thought should be legal. And so, unfortunately, ACOG uh, wrote a pro-abortion amicus brief for Dovi for the Dovey Bolton case, in which they were the ones who actually provided that health exception language um, to the Supreme Court. And then, um, in 1970, you know, end of 1972 into 1973, they also su- submitted a pro-abortion amicus brief in uh, in the Roe v. Wade case. So, ACOG was instrumental. In abortion being legalized in this country. And this was all done because they were kind of following the cultural tide in the country, not because there was any sort of new medical evidence stating that elective abortions or abortions for these reasons were medically necessary. Um, so when all of this was happening, there was an upswell of dissent from within the membership and, uh, that went unheeded by the leadership. And so once the Roe v. Wade decision came out, then our founding members, uh, pulled together and formed a special interest group within ACOG, uh, for pro-life physicians. So it started out with about 35 or 40 physicians and then quickly grew to become the largest special interest group within ACOG and had about 2000 members and stayed that way until um, 2013 when ACOG decided to dissolve all special interest groups. So,
0: okay. Wow. So now you all stand separate as, as your own organization, really representing that pro-life view, uh, are, You know, any individuals, um, you know, within the American College of OBGYNs, is, is there still any sort of pro-life, you know, even if it's underground, you know, faction with, within that group or are all w- – would you say, you know, probably the vast majority of, um, of OBGYN professionals within the American College of, of Obstetricians and Gynecologists are pro-choice?
2: Well, so it's a great question. So we know that about 85% at least of OBGYNs actually don't perform abortions. So, um, you know, now it doesn't mean that all of those physicians would claim to be pro-life necessarily, but the vast majority of OBGYNs don't perform abortions and don't support this sort of radical abortion agenda that that ACOG has exhibited and has increasingly exhibited um, over the last um, ten to fifteen years. So, um, so you know, a lot of our members actually, you don't have to leave ACOG membership to be an APLOG member. So, a lot of our members still are uh, dues paying members of ACOG. Um, so, there are a lot of their members. They've never pulled their membership on this issue, and the reason is because they don't want to know what their members think about this issue. They want mm-hmm. to continue to push their, um, politicalized, uh, pro-abortion agenda without input from their membership. So, um, so, you know, actually the fact that 85% of women's healthcare specialists don't perform abortion, to me, tells you everything you need to know that abortion is not essential healthcare, because if it was, you wouldn't have, only 15% of OBGYNs performing it. So, um, and you know, I think the reason for that is very clear one that we all, all of us who are OBGYNs know that it's not an essential part of women's healthcare, but also it's antithetical to why we went into this profession. Again, we went into this profession to care for moms and their babies. We didn't go into this profession to end a life and to harm, um, our maternal patients. So, um, so the pro-life position, or at least the the um, anti-performing abortion uh, position is actually the majority uh, within the field of OBGYNs. So talk a little
0: bit about uh, what the American Association of Pro-Life OBGYNs does today. How are you all uh, really protecting life and fighting for, for both mothers and babies?
2: Absolutely. So we are the largest non sectarian professional medical organization representing pro-life medical professionals in the world. So we have mostly members from the U.S., but we also have international members. And we exist to equip and encourage our members to be able to give the evidence-based defense of our pre-born patients and our maternal patients. Um, so we are doing that through representing our members in the public square. So we have submitted amicus briefs to the Supreme Court in defense of our members' conscience rights and on uh, every major abortion case since 1973. So we're doing that so we can fight for the rights of our members to continue to practice pro-life medicine. Um, we also exist to give our members as they're practicing as they're encountering patients in their in their office who maybe are contemplating abortion we want our members to be equipped with the again overwhelming scientific and medical evidence that exists to say that abortion is harmful for them so when you have a woman as a physician or a midwife we have We have midwives who are members. We have family practice docs who are members. When you're sitting there with a patient in front of you who says do you think abortion is what I should do? Do you think that that would, you know, help me in this way or that, that our members have the evidence to be able to say to them, one, I can tell you that this is a human being growing inside of you. But two, let me tell you the reasons why making this decision now might have harms for you later on in life. And, you know, I think the importance, one of the things that we like to stress at Applog is, we are, yes, we are for our preborn patients, but we also are for our maternal patients. And we are just trying to empower women with the information that they need to make an informed choice. So even if my patient ends up deciding to go and have an abortion, I want her to go into it eyes wide open. I want her to know the risks that she's taking in doing that so that at least if she's making that choice, she knows that she's making an informed choice. She's not making a choice based on life and based on not being given the full information that we have. So that's really um, our main focus is to um, equip our members to be able to have those conversations in their practice with their patients, um, to be able to have those conversations with their colleagues, and we also are really striving to empower and encourage Uh, physicians in training. So, um, you may know this, but medical students, especially and OBGYN residents are facing immense pressure to cave to, um, our pro-abortion cultural narrative that, you know, women should have unfettered access to abortion, that we should not, um, say anything to them to discourage them from having an abortion and that um, they actually should be required to refer a woman for an abortion or perform the abortion themselves. So they are facing... Immense pressures from their superiors to give in to this narrative. And we want them to, again, be armed with this information that, hey, I'm opposing abortion because it's bad for my patient. I'm not just opposing abortion because I have a moral objection to it. I'm opposing it because it's bad for my patient. And it's bad for me as a healthcare provider. To violate my conscience, to violate um, what I know to be best for my patient, just to give in to this cultural narrative, so um so we exist to to equip and encourage them and and we really want medical students and residents to know that they are not alone. I know that so many pro-life medical students and residents just feel very isolated and they are quiet about their views because they feel like they can't speak up because they face um academic censure. You know, they're they're having to stand up to their attending physicians or their upper level residents who will determine the course of their career, um, and say to them, you know what, I don't agree with you when you're saying this about abortion. I don't agree with you. I, I'm, I trying to tell you that it's bad for my patients. So, um, if they feel alone, I think they feel like they can't do that, but, um, we are trying to give them the power of 7,000 plus members, um, behind them and the scientific evidence that they need to be able to, to defend their patients. So. Mm, that is so, so critical. We certainly encourage uh, all of our listeners
0: to check out your website at applog that's A-A-P-L-O-G.org, to learn more. But Dr. Francis, we really thank you for the work that you're doing, the resources that you're providing for individuals, and uh, for the ways that, that you're fighting to protect both women and babies.
2: Thank you so much. And if I can just say one more thing too, this is going to actually be a, a um, problematic women exclusive. So for if there's anybody out there who's in the field of women's healthcare who's listening to this and you're wondering about some of the things that I said about ACOG or maybe you've seen some guidance come out from ACOG recently on abortion and you're just wondering where this is coming from, we actually just launched a new website that is um, www.notmyacog.org and people can go to that website to just see the documentation of a lot of the things that we talked about on this podcast of um, ACOG really placing the uh, abortion agenda ahead of what is good medicine. And so I just would encourage people to check that out, um, especially if they're involved in women's health care.
0: Excellent. And we'll be sure to put uh, both of those links in the show notes so individuals can uh, easily look that up. But Dr. Francis, thank you so much for your time today. We so appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Up next, Lauren talks with Heritage Action's Janae Strackey about recent controversy over election laws. But first, I want to tell you all about a great way you can stay in the know on all the news The Daily Signal covers, social media. The Daily Signal has an active presence on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We are constantly posting news stories, clips from interviews, videos, and much, much more across all of our platforms. Follow The Daily Signal on social media so you can get all the latest content from reels on Insta to video. Clips on Facebook and political commentary on Twitter.
1: Voter integrity has always been an important issue. We want our elections to be secure so we can all trust the results to be accurate. And since the 2020 presidential election, voter integrity has become an even bigger issue at a state, at a federal level. Lawmakers are trying to make changes to election laws, some of those for good and some for bad. Here to tell us what we need to know is the grassroots director of Heritage Action for America, Janae Strocki. Welcome, Janae. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I love being here. It's great. And and for those who can't tell, Janae is in the studio and it's just it's awesome to see people and get to talk to people face to face. Absolutely. It makes a world of a difference. (laughs)
3: Hopefully all of you listening are able to do more face to face (laughs) events as well. Yes. Yes.
1: Well, Janae, you've had a very busy 2021 Can you kind of walk us through what your year has looked like?
3: Yeah, it's been very busy. I mean, as everyone knows, we started out our year with the Georgia Senate runoff race. So the end of 2020 was spent door knocking in Georgia. And I I describe it as like having a college final after Christmas break. You know, (laughs) we went home for Christmas, but our job was Far from over, we hit the ground in Georgia early January, and you know had a a disappointing outcome from that. But we saw impact from that. I know I talked with you guys right after that race. Actually, um, was flying back from Georgia, and we learned a lot from that, and have since been working on state-based election integrity reform. And a lot of what happened in Georgia, whether it be the November election or the Senate runoff, and and Georgia's not alone in this either. Other states, there are really just shoddy state laws that are essentially allowing for fraud. And it makes it very, very difficult to prove or detect. And, you know, there's all sorts of work we need to do on elections, but certainly this is like ground zero. Let's get our state laws where they need to be so that we can um, make sure they're enforced and prosecuted when there is fraud.
1: So, yeah, no, Janae, that's exactly what I wanted to talk to you about and specifically get into this Democrat backed election bill known as for the people act. The bill has already passed in the House and the Senate held a discussion uh, discussing the legislation earlier this week. And as I mentioned, the bill is known as S1 or for the people act. What I mean, that sounds like a good thing. But what would
3: this bill actually do? Well, as we've been calling it, it's the Corrupt Politicians Act. (laughs) Of course, the Democrats are always looking for a spin. They'll name their bills, whatever they can, to make them sound good and then champion them and and spin them. That's exactly what they're doing. But we're going to counter that. We've been calling this the Corrupt Politicians Act. It's it's not for the people at all. You know, they've been fighting against the state-based reforms that we're making. They're fighting at the federal level to completely undo all of them. This bill is a federal takeover of our voting system and is actually – actually, Senator uh, Blunt said this in yesterday's markup meeting. He said that uh, this bill makes it easier to cheat and harder to defeat. So we've been saying from the beginning with all the work that we're doing, all of the state-based bills we're working on, it needs to be easier to vote and harder to cheat we want it to be easier to vote and harder to cheat but what the democrats are trying to do with hr1 s1 their so called for the people act which is the exact opposite of that it is for corrupt politicians it's making it easier for them to control all of our lives and to control the elections and that it's going to make it easier to cheat and harder to detect it's it's the exact opposite of what we want wow after this year it's just
1: amazing that people are even pushing for this it's so easy when you say it like that, you know, like, let's make it easier to vote and harder to cheat. Who are the faces behind this bill? And why are they pushing it?
3: Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, if I'm frank, it's most of the Democratic Party. (laughs) And there are always going to be moderates that say they're not going to be in lockstep with leadership. Um, Schumer and Pelosi who are championing this, you know, that's why it's HR1 and S1. These are is a top level bill. For them, so um, Pelosi and Schumer are going to make sure that they they fight for this and that all the Democrats fall in lockstep. So even the moderate Democrats who say they're going to fight against leadership are for this, and it's because um, a they Pelosi and Schumer have a hold on them, and and b because this bill does all sorts of crazy things like fund their campaigns. It's literally going to be taking taxpayer dollars and giving them money for their campaigns. It, Senator Cruz called this yesterday welfare for the politicians. <laughs> so your your hard-earned tax dollars now. Democrats, they, they want to rig the rules. They want everything to be in their favor so that they can control your lives and they want you to pay for it. Wow. Well, on Tuesday, the Senate Rules Committee held a hearing about the
1: legislation to determine whether or not to advance the bill to the floor of the Senate. Uh, as you mentioned, the Democrats are backing the bill. The Republicans are not. Can you give us a, a couple
3: highlights from that hearing? Yeah. So, I mean, there are a handful of amendments that were put forth. I think um, one that really stands out to me, and Heritage Action put out a video uh, yesterday morning, right before this this markup meeting started, uh, about Democrats wanting convicted felons to be able to vote. And this is not just – not just some felons it's all felons it includes the violent ones it's child molesters it's rapists it's murderers um they want all of them to be able to vote and so again this is the s1 is a federal takeover and is literally demanding that states do whatever this bill says so it's, it's removing the rights of states removing states abilities to decide what's best for their state and whether they want child molesters and murderers to vote or not. Um, So I bring that one up because that is, um, I mean, I think hideous and heinous. Um, But there was one amendment put forth by uh, Senator Hyde Smith, and it ended up, passing by a very, very narrow margin, the only Democrat who technically is an independent who caucuses with the Democrats is Senator King from Maine. He is the reason this amendment passed. So that says to me a few different things. Um, And and first, let me clarify what the amendment is. The amendment that Hyde-Smith put forth says that um, felons who uh, committed a crime against a child would not fall into what I just described. Mm -hmm. Um, so it narrowly passed that says to me, there are obviously problems mm-hmm. in this bill, which we know, um but for other Democrats to admit that is huge, but also it 's really sad that only one of them agreed with that every everybody, every other dem on that committee thought mm, no we we think <laughs> that child molesters and murderers should should vote. They all agreed with that, and then Senator Cruz later. Had an amendment that would would also say murderers cannot mm-hmm. vote, and that lost. So Senator King didn't think he he drew the line at um, children. But if you know you or I or anyone else was murdered, that's but, okay. Wow. Well, let's get down to the brass tacks. Do you think this will actually pass
1: through the Senate?
3: Well, it it was a tie vote on the committee yesterday. So there is a path forward for it. Um, and our goal is to make it politically uncomfortable for Democrats to do this. There's absolutely a chance that it could, which is why we are fighting so hard against it and why we need all of you listening to join in that fight, because there is a real risk that this could move forward. So um, the answer is that Senator Schumer can take this to the floor. And there's a whole process for that to happen, which I won't go into details explaining, but But you can join Sentinel at Heritage Action and we'll talk through it on some of our calls and emails. Um, So there is a process for Senator Schumer to uh, take this uh, bill to the floor. But there's a 60 vote threshold on it. So in order for it to pass on the floor, uh, Democrats are going to need to blow up the filibuster. Mm-hmm. So the filibuster is the one thing that is protecting this bill from going to President Biden's desk and being signed into law and completely undoing all of the work that we've done at the states and and quite frankly it's unconstitutional. So I suspect that if it does go through there will be many lawsuits and legal battles, but we ha- we need to fight tooth and nail to stop this and the way to stop it is to protect the filibuster. Um, So a lot of pressure falls on um, Senator Manchin in West Virginia or other moderates like uh, Sinema and Kelly in Arizona. Um, There are some definitely vulnerable Democrats that we can be applying pressure to um, and and making it really politically uncomfortable for them to support this bill.
1: Well, let's talk about some of the good news Uh, in Florida, my, my home state, the best state. Uh, Governor DeSantis just signed a new election reform bill into law. What is different about that legislation than what we're seeing on the federal level?
3: Well, I mean, it's some of what I've already talked through. It's the difference is states controlling their laws. So what Florida did, they're making it, again, easier to vote. And harder to cheat. So they're putting safeguards in place to make sure that whoever is placing that vote is who they said that they are, that they weren't being coerced by someone else, that their their ballot that they didn't know was even coming to their house was stolen and, and harvested and filled out by someone else. I mean, there's all sorts of different kinds of fraud that go on. So what Florida did was um, they put law into place that is going to make it easier to vote and harder to cheat. One of them is um, – you know private money making sure that private money isn't influencing your elections. So we want your vote to count. We want everyone to, to everyone who can legally vote to vote and for it to count. And that's what we're doing on state levels in Florida and other states across the country. Um, and then you know it's just in stark contrast with what uh, they're doing with HR1S1 which is trying to say no, we don't think that people need to have a voter ID to vote. That S-1 would demand that anyone could vote pretty much anywhere at any time. You can show up on election day. You can register that day. You don't have to show an ID. So you can show up that day. Who knows where you're from? Who knows what your name is? Who knows if you're even a (laughs) citizen of America? And you can vote. That's what this bill is going to do. And all of these states, including Florida, are saying, hey, we want you to vote. We want you to come with an ID that's that's easy anyone can get an id most states they're they're free or if they're not free they're like if you can't get one we'll get it to you like we are making it easier to vote and harder to cheat you gotta prove who you are i mean you can't hardly do anything across this country without an id so if if you if you're going to baseball games picking up tickets at will call if you're getting on an airplane if you're going to the DMV. I mean, you name it. We use IDs for virtually everything. And I don't know why we wouldn't use them to vote as well.
1: Well, Georgia also implemented a law very similar to the law that just passed in Florida. And the left went crazy talking about it was the new Jim Crow and that it's so racist. What how do we push back against this narrative that you know, for some reason, requiring an ID or making elections safer is is
3: racist. Yeah, I mean, I think we just call it out. There are a lot of awesome members of Congress that were doing just that. Um, Senator Tim Scott talked about it. Um, Representative Owen Burgess was testifying, talking about it, and was honestly offended saying, you know, he said, I, I grew up during the Jim Crow era. It's offensive for you to even compare this or to imply that, I cannot get an ID because I'm black that I like are they not intelligent enough that they can't go get an ID like everyone else. It really is kind of insulting. And, and that's I mean, the Democrats act as if getting an ID like you need a Ph.D. to do it and someone needs to hold their hand, which is just not the case. So it's just a, a talking point that they're trying to bully people into. And I just the American people are smarter than that. Seventy seven percent of Americans are in favor of having an I.D. And that includes minority groups. When you break it down, those numbers actually get stronger amongst his, Hispanics and African Americans and, you know, all, all sorts of minority groups. It's just so clear that the majority of Americans support having an ID, and the Democrats are so out of touch on this. And for that reason alone, we cannot let them ram this through Congress and just, again, it's all about control and power for them, and they want to control your life. So they're going to try to ram this through, and we have to speak up and stop them. Well, Janae, a
1: lot to think about, a lot to watch out for. Really appreciate your time, and thank you for coming on the show today. Absolutely.
3: Thank you so much.
0: Are you looking for quick conservative policy solutions to current issues? Sign up for Heritage's weekly newsletter, The Agenda. In The Agenda, you will learn what issues Heritage scholars on Capitol Hill are working on, what position Conservatives are taking, and links to our in depth research. The Agenda also provides information on important events happening here at Heritage that you can watch online, as well as media interviews from our experts. Sign up for the agenda on Heritage.org today. Now, it is that
1: time, once again, my favorite time of the week, time to crown our Problematic
0: Woman of the Week. And the crown goes to NYPD Officer Alyssa Vogel.
1: On Saturday afternoon,
0: a gunman opened fire in Times
1: Square in New York City and struck three bystanders, including a four-year-old girl in the leg. Officer Alyssa Vogel acted quickly to tie a tourniquet around the child's leg before running with her to a waiting ambulance. The video of Officer Vogel running with the little girl through Times Square went viral. She joined ABC News to talk about that moment. Take a listen.
2: I'm very grateful that
0: people are taking it in that aspect of calling me a hero, but every officer on scene is a hero for that day too because there were multiple victims and everyone did a phenomenal
2: job.
1: As a new mom herself, Vogel said she was acting on instinct to do all she could to help the child. She added that the girl was incredibly brave after she was shot.
2: This little girl is the strongest person I've ever seen. For somebody who has just been shot, she
0: was just standing there, you know, obviously scared, but she wasn't crying or anything. She only yelled when we were tightening the tourniquet because that's very painful, but she was very calm for somebody who was in a very traumatic situation. Officer Vogel, thank you so much for your service to that little girl, and thank you for your service every day. This week is actually police week. So if you know a police officer or maybe you happen to see one as you're at the grocery store or out at a restaurant, be sure to thank them for their service. This has been a really hard year for many police officers who simply want to do their job and protect the communities they serve. So be sure to thank them for their service. and Officer Vogel, congratulations on being this week's Problematic Woman of the Week.
1: And with that, that's going to be it for this
0: week's edition of Problematic Women. Join us next Thursday morning for a brand new edition. In the meantime, please subscribe and share. Conservatives need your support in the podcast world, and we would greatly
1: appreciate a five-star review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does
0: make a difference. Have a great week, and we'll be back with you guys next Thursday.